This is God's world. And he pursues his purposes within it. And this means that everything we do or think or feel has to do with God. And when we lose sight of that, the prophets like Zephaniah bring us back. Um, Beth and I were joking this week that at least us, if not you, some of you are getting a little you know, tired of these harsh words every week from the minor prophets, right? <laughs> Just sort of knocking us over the head week by week uh, all through ordinary time. And it makes it probably worthy to say that the love and grace of God should never be pitted against his divine purposes. That within the one divine being, these things work together. And I know sometimes we want to kind of pick and choose between, you know, the God of grace and mercy and healing and, you know, beauty and peace and all those things. And we don't really like these passages where if you boil it down to it, what's really going on is God insisting on his way. This is God's world. And he pursues his purposes within it. And occasionally when his people or the world gets so off track with that, he has to insist upon his way. And the Old Testament calls this the day of the Lord. And so days of the Lord have come over the millennia. And the day of the Lord, the scripture says, is coming, where with finality, God insists upon his way and the whole cosmos is put back together in the way he intended it. So what's the reason for this harsh language? And in a word, it's idolatry. Idolatry being the worship, but the worship actually betrays something underneath it, and that is the trusting in, the relying on something other than God. It can be nature, um, it could be you know, created gods, lower G gods. Um, it can be anything that mankind puts their trust in rather than God. And this is why then God insists. This is where you hear this insistent language if you look at your passage. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship. Now, Baal was simply the most prominent deity or idol in the surrounding culture. Um, and the reason it was so important is that this was an agrarian culture, and the Baals were thought to be the gods who supervised fertility of the land, of families, and being an agrarian culture, this meant these are the gods that we have to ultimately trust in. Now, for us to think about that, you might think of it this way. What if you were born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, post-World War II? You might have been very tempted to create an idol out of Ford Motors or General Motors. This is who provides for my dad. And my dad provides for the home. So just think of classic post-World War II, middle-class Detroit, Michigan. And the temptation there could be to make a car company into an idol, that which we actually trust, if you really push us down to it. Or to think of today, 2015. I regularly have to go up to the Bay Area. I'm regularly in the Silicon Valley, and I can just tell you the deep temptation there is to put your trust in Google. I mean, right? Makes reasonable sense on one level. Or Apple, or Microsoft, or whatever. Or just the 
intensity of innovation that's up there. I don't know how many of you are up there much, but there's a deep intensity. It's different than the intensity in New York City, you know, different than the intensity of a place like Chicago or Boston, but there's an intensity of innovation that human beings are increasingly coming to rely on. Those are the temptations for idolatry for our days. Or secondly, Zephaniah rails against those, if you look at your passage, who worship the starry host. These are people who, while giving lip service to God, to Yahweh, are also sneaking up to their rooftops at night to worship and seek guidance from the star gods or the star goddesses. And yes, of course, this is no, this is the beginning of what we would call today astrology. It's been happening again for millennia. So they're giving lip service to God, the one true God, while sort of hedging their bets by following the stars. And this hits its low point in that phrase where it says, who also swear by Moloch. Moloch is maybe the most depraved, idol, low-gy God in the Old Testament because he was the God who was thought to control death. And so, you know, to the fertility gods, they had their sexual rights or they would offer the first fruits of the land. But what do you do to Moloch, the God who's thought to superintend death, child sacrifice. I mean, this is as low as you get. And so Zephaniah is saying, how can this be that you have this crazy mixed loyalty by trying to cover your basis by worshiping other God kings? And so for me, from a, a, if we were now to take a pastoral look at this or, or a discipleship look at this, for me, it raises the question, well, from where in our hearts would such idolatry come? And an answer is that we have within us a nearly irresistible attraction towards created things, towards comfort or wealth or honor, or pleasure or health. And that this nearly irresistible attraction keeps us or that keeps dragging us to idols and taking us away from God. Well, one of the great sort of spiritual leaders of the church that has had some uh, very helpful insight onto all this is St. Ignatius. And Ignatius taught that to follow Jesus well, we had to become indifferent to created things and to rid ourselves of all inordinate affections and attractions. Now, the key word there is inordinate, or disordered is the word I often use. Disordered desires. This does not mean that you can't have preferences about this, uh, things. It doesn't mean that you can't have your own will. Look at me and listen to me. Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. Even Jesus had a preference. This doesn't mean you can't have a preference. This doesn't mean you can't have your own mind. This doesn't mean you don't have your own soul. This doesn't mean that you don't actually have your own system of desires. It's just that when push comes to shove, we get to Jesus' words, nevertheless, thy will be done. For at the end of the day, even my preferences are a matter of indifference. So what Ignatius was trying to teach us, and of course this all has its taproot in Jesus, is that our only desire and choice should be what, facilit what facilitates the end for which we were created. Everything else should be a matter of indifference. 
So the first thing is idolatry. The second thing, if you look at your passage, is what we would call today backsliding. Uh, The passage says, those who turn back from following the Lord and don't seek him. And I think the thing to say here is, you know, Debbie and I were converted in Calvary Chapel. We grew up in Calvary Chapel. I only say that to say that we grew up immersed in the Bible, right? Any of you know Calvary Chapel? We grew up absolutely immersed in the Bible, and so have been for 40 years. Never stopped being immersed in the Bible. What needs to be said here is that when we don't seek the Lord, when we neglect to saturate ourselves in God's Word, and I don't mean to say, um, you know, just little passages or, or, you know, just kind of knowing little bits of doctrine or whatever, um, memorizing little verses as important as that is. What's in view here is something more like this, saturating yourself in God's story. Why? This is his world. He's pursuing his purposes in it. The best place we have for discerning those purposes is in the scriptures. So the idea here is to saturate yourself in the narrative of God, in the purposes of God, the plan of God, the will of God, and then to seek it. Because neglecting to sacrifice ourselves in God's word, if you were to ask me, you know, having observed hundreds of thousands of Christian lives over my time, would be to say this, that neglecting to saturate ourselves in his story almost always leads to neglect of his will and his purposes. Because only knowing his story can facilitate even a heart for his will and purposes. Well, this is what we see going on, even, you know, fast forward from Zephaniah to the time of Jesus. This is exactly what we see happening in our gospel reading this morning. All throughout Mark, Mark's big thing, so to speak, is to present Jesus as powerful so that people will understand his deity, that he is the Son of God. And so when he shows us Jesus walking on the water, really what's underneath that is the up and down journey the disciples are having towards some sort of full-hearted faith in him. The disciples at this point are still asking, who is this? And so when Jesus intends to walk past the boat, Mark wants us to see that what Jesus is trying to do is reveal himself as the Son of God, that passing within their sight was meant to give visible evidence of his deity, as were the healings that followed. So think about this saturation thing that I talked about, and now hear this sentence that I've said to you two or three other times. We live at the mercy of our ideas, Our ideas govern us with an iron hand, usually subconsciously, but our ideas, and especially our ideas about God, govern us. And so I love the way Eugene gets this in the message. He says, but none of this had yet penetrated their hearts. You know, the ESV says they had hard hearts. Eugene has it. But but this stuff was having a hard time penetrating their hearts. Well, what do we do when we find ourselves in that kind of place where we notice sinful mistrust in ourselves or the sins that flow from it? What do we do when we discover those kinds of things? And here again, I want you to look at your passage for Zechariah gives us a nice laundry list of things that we can do. Number one, engage in reverent silence. So just before the sovereign Lord, we place ourselves before him in silence and This means to acknowledge and to listen to him. It means to learn to 
still ourselves and pay attention. Now, we say this occasionally, but I want to say it again. It is not an accident that quietness, stillness, silence is a high value in Holy Trinity. I wish we were better at it. And I get that it's hard for some of you. And whenever it is, just gently remind yourself that you're an addict. And this is your AA group. That you're an absolute addict to noise, to busyness, and to hurry, and it makes you less human. It works against your otherwise heart to love your neighbor. Because love takes time. And the one thing a hurried person does not have is time. So noise and hurry and stimulus is actually dehumanizing at a certain point. And this is why I will not relent. This has nothing to do with Todd's vision. This has nothing to do with Holy Trinity's ascetical values. At bottom, I will not relent. The gods of our age, just like the ancient gods, exist to dehumanize. This is God's world. And he's always been trying to form a humanity who are his cooperative friends. And there have always been things that distracted people away from that. And God would then raise up a prophet like Zephaniah to call us back. This is why silence and quiet and the sort of contemplative vibe is such a value to us. Because noise and activity make us spiritually deaf. And busy, oriented production works against being with God. So Zephaniah says, seek the Lord. Now here he's counteracting those who were seeking guidance from the stars or provision from Baal and saying, look, to do anything other than seek the Lord is idolatry in our hearts. And, and that thing in our heart is the source of idolatry that's tempted to look other places besides the Lord for our provisions. Seek righteousness, he says. What's righteousness? Righteousness is simply faithful alignment with this is God's world, and he's pursuing his purposes in it. That's righteousness. It's simply alignment with what it is that God's up to. And a kind of heart alignment, this is, you know, this was always Jesus' big deal, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth does speak. So a heart alignment with God from which naturally emerge, not grunting religious, but naturally, organically, from a heart that's aligned with God and his purposes come right practices. And then lastly, Zephaniah says, seek humility. And as I, as I sat with this um, the last couple days, um, I didn't have all week to sit with it this week, but as I got to sit with this just the last couple days, I'm about to say to you one of my very favorite sentences. I can't tell you how much I love the picture that's in my mind as I say these things. Um, yeah, it's a really big deal. Seek humility. What is that? A quiet and disciplined life of submission to God. If you could write that on my tombstone someday, 
you young enough to live to see me die? Can some of you young people just remember I said this? You old guys forget it. <laughs> just, if you could put on my headstone, here lived a man who lived a quiet and disciplined life of submission to God. I would be a very happy man. See, that's the vision of these prophets. They're not religious fanatics railing against stuff. They're simply pointing out what's real in order to point to this higher reality that in God's world, God is pursuing a people who would live quiet and disciplined lives of submission to God. Well, how do we begin? I think one Lent we talked about this, but I just want to say it again quickly in the context of, of you know, a brief sermon here. Um, I don't actually know any better way to point you than to the Ignatian practices. And so let me give them to you here quickly, but you can go home and find them online anywhere. Just Google Ignatius and you'll find examine or Google E-X-A-M-E-N examine and you'll find them. But uh, this is my practice. Uh, at the end of every day, um, I do these steps. Number one, become aware of God's presence. So just still yourself somewhere. And with the Holy Spirit, I always invite the Holy Spirit to help me look back at the events of the day. Sometimes the day seems really confusing, kind of like a blur or a jumble. And so you have to still yourself. You may have to ask God to bring to you some clarity or understanding. But just become aware of God's presence in your day. Secondly, Ignatius says, just begin to re review the day with gratitude. So I sometimes will actually get out my iPhone with my calendar in front of me and review my day. Just go through all the phone calls, all the meetings, all the things I did, and in the presence of God, note its joys, its delights, its gifts, whatever happened. Look at the work that I did, the people I interacted, trying to more deeply pay attention to small things, knowing that God is often in the details. Which brings us to number three, for Ignatius, one of the details that was so important was that we pay attention to our emotions during the day, to reflect on the feelings we experienced during the day. Was I bored, full of resentment? Did I have moments of compassion or anger or confidence? And then you just begin to ask yourself, what is God saying through these feelings? And most often, if I'm keeping it real, I notice something sinful. I mean, not always, but normally. I notice something sinful, something I wish I did better or said better or been more present. You know, I, nor I normally notice stuff like that. But as I've tried to teach you a hundred times, to make note of those things without judgment. Just note these sins or these faults because what you really want to do is you don't want to get hung up on judging yourself because that'll get you stuck from the next step, which is to look deeply for the underlying issues. In other words, it's not uncommon for me to feel deeply frustrated. And so I have to ask myself, okay, what's underneath that? Where is somebody or something frustrating my will or my movement forward or trying to bring something together? Maybe God wants me to consider some new way of doing my work or whatever. Or perhaps you notice that you're really concerned for a friend and maybe God's asking you to reach out to her or whatever. Well, number four, Ignatius would say, pick one feature of the day and pray from it. And that is to say, again, ask the Holy Spirit to direct you to just one thing during the day that seems to you in that moment particularly important. It could be something positive or something negative. It could be a significant encounter with another person or a vivid moment of pleasure or peace or pressure, whatever. And just look at it and pray spontaneously from your heart. 
So it could be intercession, it could be praise, could be repentance, could be gratitude, whatever it is, just look at it without judgment, pray spontaneously. And then lastly, Ignatius would say, look forward to tomorrow. And that is to say, pay attention to any feelings that surface as you survey tomorrow's challenges. Maybe you're doubtful, cheerful, apprehensive, maybe full of delighted anticipation. And again, just allow naturally these feelings to turn into prayer as you seek God's guidance, pray for hope, or whatever comes naturally. So um, to land this plane this morning, I want to bring us back to the context of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is prophesying against uh, the backdrop of two generations of really wicked leadership of Manasseh. And this Jewish king who was willing to do anything to fulfill his ambition for riches and power. There was a willingness to be corrupt and to commingle with other gods if that's what it took to get what he and the nation following him wanted. In other words, Manasseh set the pace, if you know what I mean. He created an atmosphere in which everything Zephaniah is railing against could happen. So Manasseh had this willingness to live as if God did not exist, that this isn't God's world, that he's not up to something in it. He was willing to live as if God had no claim on their lives and that God would never intervene to protect his sovereign purposes. He lived as if there was no day of the Lord. Well, again, prophecies meant to shake us from that kind of thinking, from that kind of delusion. So, for instance, listen to Joshua, who is trying to renew a sense of the covenant in Israel. Remember this famous passage, fear God and worship him in total commitment. Can you hear that? Fear God, worship him in total commitment, or choose a God you'd rather serve. I mean, I can hear, you know, Joshua sort of saying, keeping it real, yo. Or putting it differently, knock off the BS. If it doesn't seem right to you to follow God, then choose a God that seems right to you to follow. And follow that God. But as for me and my house, Joshua says, we will follow Yahweh. Or think of Elijah prophesying to the people. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if you think Baal's God, Josh, or Elijah said, then follow him. Or give me your undivided attention 10 more seconds. Or think Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these other things you need will be given to you. You do not need to commingle your loyalty to other gods or other powers. Seek first the kingdom of God. And anything the Baals could give you or Moloch could give you or fertility gods or the gods of various pantheons, anything you think they can give you, they actually cannot because they're dead and don't have life. But if you seek first the kingdom of God, everything that you would seek from one of those idols will actually be given to you. For your Father in heaven loves you, and the hairs on your head are numbered, and he knows what you need before you can even ask it. This is the picture that Jesus was always trying to paint, and this is why people said of him he's a prophet. Jesus often talked just like a prophet. Now, we, of course, know he was way more than a prophet, but you can see how the people of his day would have heard him as a prophet. Sounds very much like Joshua or Elijah. So as we come this morning to a quiet moment, 
Maybe you wanna just bow your head with me and close your eyes or put your stuff down or whatever you need to do to still yourself. And begin to ask yourself, is there an area in your life where you need to quit wavering? Is there somewhere where you're hedging your bets? Is there an aspect of your life where you need to choose who you will follow and serve? And just know that if that's so, right now as you sit here, you can fearlessly ask God to help you identify it and deal with it. He is the waiting father of the parable of the prodigal son. That's established. Question is, can you in this moment be the childlike child? Can you come to your senses and as a daughter or son of God, run joyfully home, choosing this day to be with your father and him alone?